Well, good morning. It's good to see you today. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us right now uh, in an off-site campus or on the internet or in the chapel. Can you cheer in the chapel? All right. And uh, in the warehouse. Uh, we're glad that you guys uh, are along also. Hey, some of you know, some of you don't, that a portion of every dollar that you put in the offering boxes each week goes to plant churches here and around the world. Uh, through our church planting arm, the Ark. And I just wanted to kind of update you today. There, I think there's uh, three churches being planted today around the United States. And since the, the beginning of the year, we've planted a dozen churches, which is kind of a cool thing. Would you give the Lord just some <laughs> praise for that? And, um, and also, uh, this morning we have visiting us Rick Zachary, who is a church planter all over the world. And uh, he has with him a couple from India that's going to be planning a church in Mumbai. They're supposed to be right here on the front row, uh, but unless the rapture has happened, they're somewhere else <laughs> somewhere else in the crowd. You guys here anywhere? Do you wave or, or did they make it? Where at? Oh, over here. Hi. Welcome, you guys. We're, 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 glad, to, uh, we're glad to see you. Hey, recently, uh, Debbie and I were invited by some Jewish friends here in the Charleston area to participate in a Shabbat dinner. A Shabbat dinner is uh, during the Sabbath. It begins just after sundown on Friday night. And so we went to this house. Uh, the only ones we knew were the friends that invited us. It was an incredible experience. Uh, we walked in and it kind of moved the furniture out of the main area. And there's this long table with a beautiful white tablecloth and uh, also uh, some incredible dishes and there were about 15 to 20 people, uh, unbelievable food. But what made it uh, just an experience that was so unusual for us was that it wasn't just a dinner. It was a dinner with a purpose. Everything we did that night was full of meaning and ritual, from the blessing of the wine and the bread at the beginning uh, to various courses of food. And it was an abundance of food. But each course symbolized something. And then there was a blessing of uh, children. Uh, between courses, there would be uh, uh, lots of singing, not good singing, but singing. Um, ancient uh, psalms out of a l- little book. We tried to go along as best we could, but it, it was all in Hebrew. And um, at one point, this was kind of in between, you know, you know, the, the, the potatoes and the meat, whatever we'd sing or whatever. And then there was a mini sermon. And fortunately, it was real short, but it was good. It was really good. And then there was lots of great fellowship. After three hours at the table, we were stuffed. We were quite satisfied. And we knew more about the Jewish uh, faith of our friends than we knew before we came. Now, as we were, as we were driving home, um, I made several observations to Debbie. First, the whole experience reminded us of an extended family meal. You know, it's kind of like the Surratt household at, um, you know, Christmas or Easter when we get together and you've got, it's very intergenerational. You've got uh, anywhere they had little, little kids and medium-sized kids and, and uh, uh, all the way up to elderly people. Uh, you had various uh, kind of levels of faith also. You had an Orthodox rabbi and then uh, people who were trying to live their faith and then others uh, not so much. But anyway, they're all there, and, and everybody could participate. There was, a, there was obviously a, a purpose to the gathering other than eating. They intentionally celebrated 
the work of God among them and as a people over the last few thousand years. But the thing that really kind of inspired me was the involvement of the kids, the kids in the whole experience. You know, they didn't stay there for the whole time. They wandered in and out, as kids will. Uh, but there were crucial times that the kids were apart. I, I said earlier they blessed the kids at one point. Um, at one point, the kids picked out the songs and led in, in singing, and uh, they, they were included in some of the rituals. But there was an intentionality of connecting the kids to their heritage every Friday night, passing down the faith of their fathers to the next generation. And so I asked myself, and, and as we're in this study uh, this week, I asked myself, and have you ever wondered, how effective are we at passing the baton to the next generation? How effective are we? Have you ever seen a relay race? You know, in a relay race, you've got usually four people that are running an event, and they pass a baton, and I had a baton as a, as a, uh, as a prop, but I lost it on the way up between uh, somewhere. But anyway, they, 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 so pretend like I've got it right here. And they, they've got this p- baton, which is a little piece of round metal. You've seen that. And they pass it from one person to another, and they've got a limited amount of time. In fact, it's about 20 meters that they can pass the baton. And it's the most crucial part of the race. You can do really, really well in all of the pieces, the individual pieces of the race. But if you blow the passing of the baton, you lose the race. In the last Olympics uh, in 2008, something happened that had not happened since 1928. Here's what it was. The American relay teams in the uh, 4 by 100 meters, uh, either the men or the women made the finals. Had not happened since 1928. In fact, the men were favored to win the whole thing by a bunch, but both of them did the same thing. They, they ran real well in the individual parts, but they dropped the baton. In fact, in the men's race, they were ahead, and the guy that they were giving it to for the anchor leg was the defending world champion in both the 100 and 200 meters. But you know what? It didn't make a bit of difference because the race was lost in the passing of the baton, the most crucial Part of the race. So how are we doing at passing the baton to the next generation? We're in a series that we called Immeasurable, and we're looking at Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, which if you've, if you've come to Seacoast very long, you know that that's a passage of Scripture that we read as a blessing at the end of every service. And it's been a great series. I hope you've enjoyed it. I know I have. And here's what I want to do on this last uh, weekend of the series. I want us to read it together out loud at the beginning of the message. And uh, we've obviously picked apart pieces of it. We're going to take the last piece uh, this weekend. So uh, on your outline sheet uh, and in the campuses or wherever you are, would you read it out loud unless you're in a library somewhere watching a podcast and just kind of, kind of fake it. All right? So here we go. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Here's what I want to focus on this week. Throughout all generations. Throughout all generations. I want to look at two things. I want to spend just a minute at the beginning of the message and I want to look at how, how are we doing at passing it down to the next generation? How are we doing, honestly? Let's just get a reality check. 
And then, and then I want to spend the majority of my time talking about how can, how can we get better? How can we pass the baton effectively to the next generation? So, how are we doing? How are we doing? Apparently not well. According to several studies that I read, we're just not doing a real good job of passing the baton to the next generation. In fact, the 2002 Gallup poll study found that church attendance drops during the teen and young adult years, and we kind of, we, we, you know, you, you see that. Lifeway Research study in 2007 found that 70% of college students quit attending church. In other words, students that attended before they went to college, and we see some Citadel guys here in the front row. I'm glad you guys are here. It's awesome. But... Um, But when uh, church-going kids go to college, 70%, 70% quit attending church. Now, there is a bit of, of, of good news uh, with Next Generation. There's a scripture that a lot of us parents have claimed. You ever claimed this one, Proverbs 22, 6? Train a child in the way he should go, or she, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. Have you parents have ever claimed that scripture? Okay, good news, good news. Some statistical support to that. Adults who regularly attended church as a child... As, as children are much more likely than their unchurched peers to be involved in church. So that's a good thing. Now, I found another stat, two or three of these, and some of you are like statistics, you know, drive you crazy. I love them. I love them. I'm preaching, so suffer me on this just for a minute. Uh, here, here was a statistic of um, what I called household salvation. In other words, what are the probabilities that an entire household will come to serve the Lord with, with passion based on who comes to Christ first. You got that? Okay, here, here's the probabilities. If a child in the family is the first person in a household to become a Christian, there's about a 3.5% probability that everyone in the household will follow. Did you get that? If the kid's the first one. Now, I, I know examples of this. I, I had some friends growing up that uh, came to Christ when I was in high school, and their family was a mess. And we prayed and prayed and prayed, and over a period of about four or five years, individually, each one of the family, and, and finally dad, dad and mom were separated, divorced, in a nasty, nasty, nasty situation. And dad was one of the uh, meanest characters in Denver, seriously, just really a bad dude. And I, I remember the day that they came, we had an altar at the front of our, you know, when I talk about altar, depending on your background, well, that means something different, but kind of a bench down at the front where people came to pray. And I remember the night on a Wednesday night that dad came to one end, mom came to the other, neither knowing they would be there, convicted by the Holy Spirit, and ended up at the middle of the altar, and the whole family came to Jesus after about a five-year process. And it started with the kids. But what the probabilities of that is if a child is the first one, about three and a half percent that everyone in the household will follow. If the mother is the first to become a Christian, there's a 17% probability that everyone else in the household will follow. Listen to this. If the father is first, there's a 93% probability that everyone in the household will follow. Did you get that? Guys, that's why, that's why uh, unashamedly, when we started this church 23 years ago, we targeted men. We targeted men. It seemed crazy because most churches have more women in church than they have men. There are a lot of reasons for that. And uh, I believe that, uh, boy, you know, last week I talked about, I think uh, last week or a couple of weeks ago, about uh, some godly women that prayed this church into existence and godly women in my own family that are responsible for us knowing Christ. 
But the facts are, if you can reach men, that there is a higher probability that the entire family will come to Christ. That's why in this church, we had a softball team before we had a service. We won a city championship before we had a service. <laughs> Praise God. And, uh, and, so, and so what I want to say to the men, and there are so many men in this crowd today, I want to say, yay, God, you are, you are doing a great thing for yourself and for your family. Would you agree with that? Uh, Now, there are 94 million men in the United States, of which 68 million don't attend any church. So there's plenty of room for harvest there. Let me give you one more statistic. Uh, This this has to do with uh, children as they become adults, whether they continue to follow the Lord, whether they continue to stay in church. And here are the statistics. If a mother and a father attend church regularly, if they if they do it uh, regularly, then 33% of the kids will end up attending church regularly, one-third. 41% of the kids will end up attending somewhat regularly. So 75% of the kids will either come regularly or somewhat regularly, and 25% of the kids will end up not attending at all. If a mother attends church regularly, but a father does not attend at all, there's a real drop-off. 2% of the kids will end up attending church regularly. 37% will end up attending somewhat regularly, and 61% of the kids will end up not attending again the importance of men stepping up and being leaders in the home. Now, that that can be discouraging. If you're a single mother or or you're a mom that that, uh, your husband doesn't attend and you go, wow, you know, what a tragedy that can be. Let me tell you what. You claim claim the minority report, okay, for your family. And I also believe today that if we will practice and put into... um, into our lives, some of the things we're going to talk about, about how to pass on the torch to the next generation or, or the baton to the next generation, I think that you can reverse the trend, okay? So with that in mind, how can we pass it on? How can we pass it on? Let me give you three ideas, okay? Three simple, simple ideas, and here they are. Number one, you've got to catch it yourself. Before you can pass anything on, you have to catch it yourself. I have a friend that lives on a golf course, and... Uh, God bless him. And um, uh, somebody found out, a golfer found out that he lived on the golf course. He said, man, you are so blessed, you know. Maybe, maybe, did you plan this, you know, or maybe, you, you know, just fortunate or whatever. He said, how often do you get to play golf? And my friend said, never. He said, never. He said, no, never. I never have played golf in my life. And the guy said, you live on a golf course and you never play golf. What's up with that? My friend said, I never caught the bug. I never caught the bug. I thought about that. He never caught the bug. See, when people catch the bug, that's all they want to do and that's all they want to talk about. Would you agree with that? I mean, when a guy has a fishing bug, it can almost become obnoxious, can it? When you, I mean, a, a guy can be, you know, at a dinner party or wherever it happens to be, and, and, and he's like a bump on a log, and he's not conversing, and nothing's going on. You wonder if there's anything here. And somebody mentions something about fish, and it just lights up. You know, all of a sudden, body language changes. He's into the conversation. He's talking about it. They're talking about, you know, the last fish they caught and all that kind of stuff. If you've never been fishing, he wants to introduce you to it so you'll be bitten by the bug. It's the same with a sports team bug or a work bug or a car bug or a hobby bug. And it's men and women, either one can have those bugs. Specifically for ladies, some ladies catch the baby bug. Ladies, do you know what that's all about? 
I've been involved in those conversations. I have to excuse myself and go somewhere else. Because it's just the the whole, you know, everything changes. That's all they want to talk about. And it almost becomes contagious. See, most of the bugs that I have... I have been as a result of getting too close to somebody who was contagious. You know what that, that's like? I have a photography bug, okay? I just enjoy taking, taking pictures and started with a little camera and then I got next to somebody that had the bug that had a better camera. And so I had to buy another camera and then, and then somebody in the church will have a nice lens and I'll go home to Debbie and I'll say, it's not a, a want, sweetheart, it's, it's a need in our family because... <laughs> Somebody has got to capture these grandchildren as they're growing up, you know. And all this, but, but the bug costs you because somebody else has the bug. Well, the point is you can't be contagious with a bug that you don't have. And when it comes to passing on the faith to the next generation, unless you've got the bug, you've got to catch it yourself, you're probably not going to be able to pass it on. You can't force your kids to follow Christ. You should expose them to the faith. I mean, this crazy idea that I don't want to, you know, force my kids to do this, that, or the other, and so I don't, you know, expose them to, to anything. No, not at all. But you can't force them. But you can catch the bud. You can become so contagious that they want to follow Christ. I, you know, I, that's my story. Um... My parents weren't perfect. Mom was close. Dad wasn't even very close at all. Great guy. But he had issues just like we all have. But they had a bug. They, 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 their lives had been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was something they lived and, and they walked. And even in, in, in times when kids, we questioned their judgment on stuff, we knew they were sincere. Because they had a bug. It was something real and contagious and all four of us caught it. And it was just kind of natural, natural to catch. Deuteronomy verse 6 or chapter 6 is a passage about the importance of God's people who are parents to pass down the baton to their kids. And it says this. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God and the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly. Can you circle the word wholeheartedly? That's how you catch a bug. You commit yourself wholeheartedly. You don't go party in. You you push all the chips to the middle of the table. That's why we talk about that a lot here, because it's crucial to your family. You commit yourself wholeheartedly, he says, to the commands of God, to these commands that I am giving you today. So if we're going to pass the faith and the baton on to the next generation, we've got to catch the bug ourselves. You can't teach what you haven't caught. So you've got to catch it. Let me give you the second one. You've got to live it. You've got to live it. Um, have you noticed that kids love to imitate? Sure you have. I mean, we were keep, keeping uh, um, our twins, uh, grand, granddaughters, two years old, earlier this week, and um, Debbie was something, so I was doing something, and I was assigned to watch them. Fairly easy, right? Just keep an eye on them. Suddenly, I looked around, and they're not there. And so I'm calling for them. Nobody. I went upstairs, and they were in our closet. And you know what they were doing in our closet? They each had, you know, they're about this big. I mean, they're just little tiny things. And they had a pair of grandma's shoes on. Wrong feet, all, the whole nine yards. But fortunately, they'd found matching pairs. 
Now, they hadn't gotten grandpa's shoes. Of course, they didn't have that many to choose from. But they, but they, 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 they grabbed grandma's shoes. And, you know, it was just, it, it was kind of a cool scene. You've seen that. But they want to imitate. When your cable's on the fritz, you get frustrated. Yeah. Yeah, you can get frustrated when your cable's on the fritz. All right, so here was the line before that clip. So sometimes, sometimes imitation is not so good. Have, have you seen this commercial? When your cable's on the fritz, you get frustrated. When you get frustrated, your daughter imitates. When your daughter imitates, she gets thrown out of school. When she gets thrown out of school, she meets undesirables. When she meets undesirables, she ties the knot with undesirables. And when she ties the knot with undesirables, you get a grandson with a dog collar. Don't have a grandson with a dog collar. Yeah. How do you know that's good wisdom? Don't, don't have grand, grandson with a, with a dog collar. <laughs> it's silly, but I, I liked it. Um, so Deuteronomy 6 says that we have a responsibility to teach our kids. That can be imita- or intimidating, can it? I mean, I mean what, what, what do you do? Where's the manual for that? Teach your kids. Don't you bring them to Sunday school and then to the youth pastor, and hopefully the youth pastor will straighten them out? It's kind of been, our, kind of been how we've done it here in America. It's not working real well because the biblical pattern is we as parents are responsible to teach our kids. And then in Sunday school, we hopefully supplement what you're doing as a parent. Our youth pastors hopefully supplement when we work together in what you're doing as a parent. But parents are responsible to teach our kids. That's huge. What do I teach? I mean, I don't know what to do. I, I didn't get trained for this. I didn't even go to school for, you know, teaching. What, what do I teach my kids? And, and all, if I did know, when do I do it? I mean, my life is so full. I've got work. I've got responsibilities and on and on and on, especially if you're a single parent. It can be overwhelming. And so here's what I did. I asked Ernest Smith, who is the pastor over our family ministries here, uh, over anything from, you know, crumb crunchers all the way up to college students. And I said, Ernest, why don't you guys do some research and help us? How do you teach? And what do you teach? And when do you find time to do it? And so take a look at Ernest as he talks to us a little bit about that. One of the questions that stands out to me when I read the Ephesians chapter three passage is how do you and I live it out in front of and teach it to our kids? When we talk about the huge responsibility and privilege it is of teaching our faith to our kids, many of us feel overwhelmed. But what if I were to tell you that you could use the daily rhythms of your life to teach your faith to your kids? What if I were to tell you that you didn't have to add anything to your schedule, but rather you just needed to be more intentional about your schedule to teach your faith to the kids that God has blessed you with? In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, it states, And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you are at home and when you are on the road when you are going to bed, and when you are getting up. I know this is an Old Testament command to the Jewish people, but it has great application for us as well. 
In verse 7, it teaches us that we should be teaching God's truths when we're at home, when we're on the road, when we're going to bed, and when we're getting up. A few months ago, I read a book called Parenting Beyond Your Capacity. And in the book, it teaches about five values that we should be living out as parents. One of those values is to create a rhythm in your life. The authors weren't teaching us to add something else to our already hectic schedules, but rather to just be intentional about the schedules that we're already living out. This book and this value really challenged me to change some things about how I was living out my life with my family. It was challenging me that when I'm at home, that I needed to be living out my faith and teaching simple biblical truths to my 21-month-old. When we were driving in the car, I used that time to talk with him, sing with him, ask him questions about his day. Now, I don't get answers that I can fully comprehend, but it's not about the answers right now, but rather establishing a rhythm that is intentional. So every night, we do our normal routine of changing his diaper, getting him into his PJs, and then when we are done, we sit down as a family and read a quick story from his children's Bible. After reading the story, I give a quick application for all of us, and then we pray as a family. It's been cool seeing how my son has responded to these times together. Now he has a desire to read the Bible, or rather have it read to him. And what I'm not saying is that my son has the entire book of Leviticus memorized or that he's praying 40-minute prayers. But what I am saying is that he's beginning to catch the rhythms that we're living out and teaching him. The same could be for you and your family. For some of you, you are already incredibly intentional about the rhythms of your life. While others of you, this is the first time you've heard about this concept. My encouragement to all of us is to take that next step for our family. If you need help, my encouragement would be to download the app called Parent Q. It's an app for your smartphone or for your iPad. It's an app simply to help teach you how to be intentional about the times you have with your kids, whether it's riding in the car, whether it's sitting down to eat, whether it's going to bed or rising up in the morning. It gives you creative ideas of how to communicate God's truth to your kids. Now, the, the cool thing about this app is that it teaches a virtue of the month every month. And that virtue is synced up to us here at the church and what we teach in our children's ministry. So therefore, your conversations with your kids are already happening in the church, and now they're happening in the home, which adds greater value and greater impact for your kid and for your family as well. I want to encourage you, no matter how much or how little you may currently be doing to invest in your child's faith, take that next step today. Be willing to teach God's truths to your child in simple ways. The cool thing is, you don't have to rearrange your schedule or add anything. You just simply have to be intentional about the daily rhythms of life that you're already living. Hmm. We were out to uh, dinner last night, and uh, a couple who had heard the message, they were in the, um, the, in the restaurant downloading that app uh, on, their, on their phone. So uh, Deuteronomy says, teach it at home and on the road. At home and when you're on a journey. A couple of examples of that. Uh, a couple of years ago, my daughter-in-law, Jenna, decided that she wanted to be proactive in teaching her two-year-old at the time to memorize Scripture. And so what she did is she took little three-by-five cards and she wrote a Scripture on one side and then on the other side kind of drew and, and pasted from magazines or whatever pictures that related to the Scripture. For instance, that, that Scripture we just talked about, train up a child in the way he should go. Well, she... Uh, drew a picture of a train on one side of the car. And so she'd show it to her little two-year-old and she'd say, what's that? That's a train. Well, this is the train scripture. And so if you asked her little two-year-old, Addison, to give her the train scripture, she would quote that scripture. Well, we were just blown away that that was working. And so what she did was is that she made up like 
uh, three or four sets for her, uh, our, our other uh, three children who had kids also, gave them to them for Christmas. They started using it. It was incredible. And some of her friends said, we would like to do that with our kids. And so they started a little business called Truth Cards where um, they actually uh, made the cards up in mass. And on the other side, she enlisted me to take pictures that related to the scriptures, not because I'm a good photographer, but because I'm free. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, so, and, so, and so she made those up and, and hundreds really of, of their friends have started using them with, with their kids. They just use them at mealtime, just at mealtime, you know, when there's already a, a time. And just recently, a couple of weeks ago, the largest church in America ordered a thousand sets of them for their families that have little, little kids like that. Just, just an idea of doing it at home. Uh, on the road, I remember when Debbie and I had four teenagers and we were uh, going on a trip somewhere and I thought, I'm going to use this time to do this. And so we had about a three and a half hour drive, four teenagers, got to do something to keep them entertained. And that's back before everybody had their own iPod, you know, or phone or whatever. So I turned off all the radio and all that. I said, kids, we're going to have a lesson on biblical economics. I turned over to my, my wife and she rolled her eyes like, what are you thinking? But for the next three and a half hours, I taught them about tithing. I taught them about the 10-10-80 plan that um, anytime you get any money, uh, whether it's a birthday gift or an allowance or something for a job, you take 10% right off the top. You give it to God through the local church. You uh, save 10%. Then I, I talked to them about the savings, that uh, the biblical concepts of of um, uh, compound interest and how you can make your money work for you rather than working for uh, your money. About that time, I heard some snores, but it was good stuff. I'd do like this, kind of wake everybody up, you know. And, uh, and, and we used three and a half hours that we would have used for, you know, just anything to just teach them some principles from the Word. And I'm sure Dave Ramsey would have been really, really proud. But Deuteronomy says to incorporate your teaching into the daily rhythms of life. So here, here's, here, let's review where we are. How do you pass it down? How do you pass the baton down to the next generation? If you haven't caught it, you can't live it. And if you don't live it, you can't do the third thing, and that's this, give it away. Give it away. Now, at this point, let me pivot from talking about you and me and our responsibilities to our families to talking about us collectively as a church called Seacoast. How are we going to fulfill Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 21 to the next generation and on and on and on forever? Amen. How are we going to do? Because the vitality of our church will be directly tied to how well we give it away, to how well we pass on the baton. Well, how, how are we and how are we doing? Well, history is not on our side on this one, to be honest with you. In the New Testament, you read about some great churches. You read about the church at Jerusalem. You read about the church at Ephesus and the church at Antioch. And then in Revelations, you read about seven churches, Thyatira and Philadelphia and some other places. And you go, those were great things. I mean, entire cities were coming to Christ. Are they there today? And the truth is, no. Several of those churches lasted for a few centuries. But over time, because mainly of wars and persecution, they were scattered. Uh, Deb and I went last year uh, to uh, visit uh, Ephesus, where Paul preached in this great theater. And there are some remains of the theater and some remains of things that are there. But there's no church 
within miles and miles and miles and miles of there. It's gone. In fact, many of the churches that raised up after that are now uh, mosques, and we saw a few of those. But the churches are gone. And so Christianity kind of moved into Europe and the apostles preached there. And Europe was the center of gravity for Christianity. And now if you go to Europe, most of the church attendance in Europe, European countries is, can be measured in the single digits as a percentage of society and most in the low single digits. I visited Europe not long ago and uh, saw some great cathedrals in England uh, also went to Germany, and some small towns in Germany, you would have kind of a, a square, a town square, and at one end you'd have this great big huge Catholic cathedral, and at the other end you'd have this equally as large and impressive Lutheran cathedral. But if you were there on the weekend on Sunday, you'd see just a handful of people in either one. Because Christianity was not passed down to generation after generation. In fact, it wasn't so much wars. At times, maybe it was war. But it was mostly politics. The church got involved in the, the political system and they became one and the same. And then, and then the political system, as it did in France, became more and more secularized. And then they devalued the reality or the, the worth of the Bible. And over time, there was no desire for people to live missionally in their community and to share the good news and Christianity moved on. And so America became the new bastion of hope and churches sprang up. There was the Wesleyan revival and I know we were in the Midwest uh, for a few years before we came here and there's Methodist churches in all the little towns and, and uh, other churches sprang up and, and then over the last several years there's been the church growth movement where churches have grown and ours has been one of those. In the last few decades, people have kept lists of the largest churches. Maybe in the 50s, it was the largest Sunday schools. In the 60s, it was the largest Sunday schools. They'd have the top 20 or the top 30 or the top 50. And, uh, and, And here's what I noticed, is that over the years, you didn't have the same churches in various decades on the list. In other words, the great churches of the 50s Most of them didn't make it as the great churches of the 60s. None of them made it as the great church of the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. In fact, you very seldom see a single church that's on a list for more than two decades at the most. In fact, I don't know if any have been on for more than two decades. And I I ask why. I mean, what, what has happened to those great churches? And almost none of them are great anymore. Some have these cathedrals that they built with nearly... Uh, no one attending near empty buildings. Some like Robert Schuler's Crystal Cathedral. Are you familiar with that one? It was sold just a few months ago. It's not a church anymore, and the church has dwindled to nearly nothing. Some have been ripped by scandal. I know I was talking to one guy about a great church in the 80s that was ripped by scandal, and now I said, is that church still exists? And they said, the building has been leveled for a parking lot, for a shopping center. The church no longer exists. The center of gravity for Christianity has moved to Latin America and Africa and parts of Asia. And so I asked, what's going to happen to this church that I love? What's going to ha- what are historians going to say about Seacoast years from now? Are they going to say, because we're on, we're on all the lists right now. I don't know if you know that. I mean, for the last several years, probably eight years, the gr- greater part of the last decade, 
uh, and, and right now, we're, we're about the 28th largest church in America. We're on that list. We're on the list of the 100 fastest growing churches in America. We've been on it for about eight years. We're, we're on one list of the most innovative churches in America. I don't understand that one. Innovation is just desperation in a pretty package. That's all that is. Okay? That's all that is. And, and, and so, and so, and so what, what, what's going what's to happen? When history looks at us, are they going to say, you know what, it, it was great for a little while, but they didn't pass it on? Or will they look at us and say, you know what, this was a group that took seriously God's command to pass it on to the next generation, and they bucked all the trends, and they did it. You know, Every 20 years or so, the church has to reinvent itself. Now, 20 years is a generation. But here's what generally happens. Usually, a church reinventing themselves has to happen down the street somewhere because the church itself isn't very good at giving it away. And then we're left with an aging population that someday looks around and wonders, where did the church go? I got to tell you, that haunts me. I thought about it over and over this week. How do we keep that from happening? How do we pass it on down? I have two ideas. Number one, we keep a commitment to the Word of God as the foundational truth for life and faith. We hang on to it. We aren't about being cool, being hip, being new. I mean, it's great to be fresh. It's great to be new. I'll never be hip. But that cannot be the primary values. The primary value has to be the Word of God, the Gospel. Jesus Christ came and He died and He rose again for my sin. And we've got to communicate that. And we've got to preach that. And we cannot stray from that. It's one of the reasons I love this church. Next week we start a new series. And here's the new series. We're going to go through the book of Galatians. Okay? And we're going to learn from the book of Galatians. We're going to call it the new normal. And we're going to extract truth for today. And I want to challenge you guys to begin to read the book of Galatians even this week so that you can get ahead of me, okay? And uh, so we can learn from one another. But we have to keep the gospel central to what we do. That's the first thing we're going to do. And the second thing that we can do to keep it from happening is to keep a commitment to passing the baton to the next generation well. To know that our generation will come and go. If we're going to run the race well, we've got to pass the baton to the next generation. Here's what I know about me. I am hopelessly stuck in the 70s. If you were to ride with me in my car or you were to... Somebody last night opened my iPad to uh, Pandora Radio. Do you guys know what Pandora Radio is? If you, were to, if you were to check my Pandora radio stations or ride with me in my car, you would find that my radio is filled with the Eagles, the Doobie Brothers, Leonard Skinner, and James Taylor. Because that's when music was real. Worship that moves me comes out of the 70s. I like bell-bottoms. They call them boot cut now. I like bell bottoms and flannel shirts. I cannot imagine putting on a pair of skinny jeans 
and tucking it into a pair of boots and then leaving it unlaced. I can't imagine that. It's not how you wear your clothes. I'm stuck in the 70s. But that's okay. As long as it doesn't get in the way of passing down the gospel to the next generation. Here's what I know about myself. Lord willing, I got a lot of good years left. But let me tell you how they're going to be used. They're going to be used figuring out how I can be a cheerleader for the next generation. How I can cheer on the skinny jeans. And the girls that wear clothes that I go, Deb, does that match at all? I mean, where am I? I'm going to live the rest of my life cheering that on. I'm going to live the rest of my life being the biggest cheerleader for the next generation. If you want to know who's in your corner, I'm in your corner. Now, when I start dressing like you, I look weird. Okay, so I'm going to stay in the 70s a little bit. But I'm going to cheer you on. If I... See... That's the only way that this church will outlast us. The relay, the baton passing is the most crucial, crucial part of the race. You and I can run our race well, but if we don't give the baton to the next generation, it will be for naught. will be for naught. So we got to do this well, gang. We got to do it well. If I insist that this church conform to my taste, to my style, to the volume of music that I like, for those of you who put a card in every week about how loud it is, then I will either oversee this church's death or I will quit and go somewhere else so that I can die with people who like it just like me. See, I want to stem the tide. I want to change the course of history. I want to be the generation that passes the baton well. Did anybody say amen to that? Sometimes people say, I'm not sure if I like some of the music here. I don't. But I like the people doing it and the people who need it. And it's not about me. You hear what I'm saying? Now, don't ask me which songs I don't like. I, I'm pretty vocal on that behind the scenes, okay? I don't like Jesus is, is my boyfriend songs, okay? But anyway, whatever, whatever, whatever. All right, here we go. Let's get back on track right here. But I let them sing them because it's not about me. Okay, so, so how are we doing here? How are we doing here? Let's just evaluate us as a church. I want to be honest with you. I looked around this week and I thought, how can we evaluate this? You guys are doing pretty well. You really are. I mean, I looked around. I looked around on stage today and there's at least five, five kids here that at least grew up at some part of the youth group here leading us in worship. And, they, and, and they're all in the other parts and in some of the other campuses too. When I look around, some of the kids that grew up in this church are teaching us on the weekend. Ernest Smith was a high school kid. Snot-nosed kid had stupid questions sometimes. <laughs> Teaches. Josh Surratt. And we're not even going to talk about what he was in high school. <laughs> now God's using him 
and, and we're, we're receiving it. I see kids that grew up here that are serving in the children's ministry and student ministry and, and, and uh, leading missional communities and small groups and serving in the community. And I go, yeah, that's what it's about. Doing okay. We've got to get better. As this series ends, I want to leave you with a challenge. Would you take your outline sheet and um, look at the front of it again? And at the top, there's the verse that we've been studying for four weeks. I want to break it down in one sentence and challenge you with it. He says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. I want to challenge you, if that's true, if that's true, God is able to do more than we could ask or imagine. I want to challenge you to dream bigger dreams. I want to challenge you to pray specific prayers. And I want to challenge you to take some risks by faith. It says, according to His power that is at work within us, I want to challenge you to crave the power of God. To understand on your own, you can't do anything, but in God, all things are possible. That you go after the power of God with everything that's within you. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. I challenge you to allow God to be glorified in the church through your thoughts toward one another, through your words toward one another, and through your actions in serving one another. Throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. I challenge you to do whatever it takes to pass it on down to the next generation. And the one after that, and the one after that, and the one after that, forever and ever. Amen. Whatever it takes. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your goodness to us. I thank you for your care for each generation, and each generation is important in this church. We just don't put aside those who have experience and age. We ask for their wisdom. But we pass it on down to the energy of the next generation. God, I ask that you would just challenge us to our core today on how we're doing in our families and how we're doing as a church. And now we respond to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.